Hey everyone, welcome to Asian Tech Leaders, the podcast where we interview some of the most interesting and inspiring Asian CEOs, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. I'm your host, Justin Pang, and I'm on a mission to share the stories of Asian tech leaders to help guide your personal and professional life. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Eden Fulgo is the CEO and founder of Mobot, a venture-backed company that automates testing of mobile apps using robotics technology. Previously, Eden built products that span the energy, healthcare, and government sectors at Palantir and Butterfly Network. Eden also founded and scaled SunSolunar, a global nonprofit that has deployed an open-source solar panel tracking design in 19 countries and has helped over 17,000 people. Eden was part of the inaugural cohort of the prestigious Teal Fellowship. And before receiving the fellowship, Eden studied mechanical engineering and computer science at Princeton University. In this episode, you'll learn more about Eden's upbringing as a child of Chinese-Vietnamese immigrants in Canada, how Eden's early love for building things and participating in science fairs were important for her future success, and how being an outsider forced Eden to develop the necessary skills to adapt to any new environment. Hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get started. Hey, Eden, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Justin, thanks for having me. Excited to have you here on a Friday in the fall. It's getting chilly up in Canada, and I'm sure in New York as well, right? Yeah, I can't believe it's already October. I feel like 2022 has really flown by. It's kind of surreal. Yeah, yeah, same here. And I don't know if it's about you, but I think about <laughs> this may be a bit sad, but I think about life in quarters, right? Like, oh my gosh, we're in Q4. <laughs> this is a home stretch. What did I say I'm going to do for my New Year's resolution? This is my time to like make sure I make good on that. So yeah, just two and a less than three months left in the year, right? So time flying. I'm but, the same um, way. Yeah, yeah. But excited for the conversation and wanted to start with the Canadian connection. So talk about your upbringing in Calgary and I uh, kind of wanted to start at the earlier part of your life of, you know, your upbringing and your childhood. So we'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, uh, which is basically oil and gas country, right? I, I think it's like uh, yeah. everyone always kind of jokes. It's the Texas of Canada. Um, so I grew up yeah. kind of being exposed to uh the natural career path is you become an engineer, you go to the University of Calgary, and then you get a job working for one of the big oil and gas companies in the city. Mm -hmm. And um, that was kind of the narrative that I think a lot of my friends and family kind of pushed. And, um, you know, I had a relatively normal kind of upbringing. Um, so context about my family is uh, we are Chinese Canadian, um, but my parents were actually born and raised in Vietnam. Um, and so uh, they came to Canada as refugees after the fall of Saigon in 1970. Um, and so basically came to Canada with nothing, uh, started from scratch. You know, my mom uh, came here when she was, I think, 13 or so. So, uh, yeah, got a job, went to high school here, learned English, mm. all of that. And same with my dad um, and kind of had to just like relearn, restart everything about mm. my family. And then gradually everyone came over. So now everyone's based in Calgary or Vancouver. Um, but I think that really shaped a lot of my earlier upbringing of just being grateful that we had this, our family had this fresh start um, and being able to kind of have a safe home, have career opportunities. And so I think there was definitely a tone of trying to take the safe path, trying to just like make mm. sure that everything was okay, given just how tumultuous our family history was in the, in the last, you know, 30 years. Um, so I also think Canada has been, a, 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 you know, I'm so grateful and so proud to be Canadian um, and all the opportunities that came from growing up in Calgary. Um, but I think I've also always had kind of an adventurous entrepreneurial spirit that there's a reason I moved away from home and, and I still visit mm -hmm. often, but I think, yeah, having that sort of safe, stable upbringing has been core to part of my identity today. And, and also just like, yeah, the mindset that was instilled in me of, of wanting to make sure that like, yes, do big things, but also be careful. So, yeah. Yeah. 
which is like the ultimate like tension, right? Like, okay, we want you to take risk, but take risk within this certain, you know, box that uh, seems acceptable. So even earlier in your childhood, what did you find sparked your curiosity in terms of things that you're interested and naturally inclined to? Yeah, so I remember probably when I was around seven or eight years old, um, that was when I started learning about the scientific method and how to do science experiments. And so I found myself gravitating towards STEM very early on in my life. Um, at first I thought I wanted to be a scientist, but then I realized actually I like making things. I don't wanna just investigate a problem and find it and find out more about it. I wanna also build things with my hands and solve a physical problem. And so as I progressed in, in childhood, I started participating in science fairs. Um, and that culminated in my high school years, actually competing at the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair representing Canada. Um, and I think that was probably a very formative experience for me because I won, you know, I, I won gold medals at the local competition, wow. but then you go to the national competition and you lose and you're like, oh crap, there are people <laughs> who are better, smarter, more thoughtful, more insightful than me. What can I learn from them? Yeah. And so I think it was the wins and the losses early on. And I, you know, I also had a comparable experience playing violin. So I think like competing in music competitions, I think a lot of that exposure to winning and losing is like so critical in your early mm. years, especially as you think about entrepreneurship, because it's not yeah. a straight path. It's not a straight rocket ship and you have to be used to the highs and lows. And so I think that science fair experience also really helped to, to shape, you know, the kind of the risk tolerance and the endurance and grit that I have today. Mm. And what age do you remember starting those competitions? Was that high school or even earlier? So I did from grades five all the way through 12. I did science fairs every single year. And wow. it was definitely a gradual path where I, I lost the first few years just because the experiments that I ran weren't very interesting. And then where I realized I started to succeed in the science fair competitions was not only just trying to answer a question, but then actually like, okay, I wanna build uh, you know, a solution that solves problems. So I started designing different methods of optimizing solar panel energy collection, mm. um, which ended up becoming a nonprofit that I started um, you know, early on in, you know, after, after my college um, years. And so that all kind of started during that science fair period. And then as I headed into my high school years and when I competed at the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair, um, I was basically, that was the early prototype for the nonprofit that I started later on. Hmm. Sun Saluter. Mm -hmm. Cool. Excited to talk more about that, but great to hear kind of that early experience kind of shaped what you ended up doing and also just the mindset, right? Because even as a parent of two young kids, I'm like, well, I want them to be exposed to competition, but I don't want them to be too competitive, but I also don't <laughs> want to shelter them where they don't know what it feels like to lose and not get a participation medal, right? So it's a fine balance, mm -hmm. but it seemed like, you know, you got a lot of great lessons out of that. Yeah. And, and then kind of when you were in high school um, doing the science competitions, did you have a clear sense of what type of field and work you wanted to do during college, post-college, or were you just really present in engaging in the science fairs and you like building products and and tinker? I think that I've always known that I wanted to do engineering and go into yeah. STEM. Um, the exact implementation, of course, I, I wasn't aware of that. But yeah, I kind of knew very early on that I was going to study engineering in college. Um, I think as an adult, I've since realized that studying engineering and doing engineering in the real world mean very different things. Um, and sort of like management and individual contributor, you know, roles also mean very different things. But yes, I've always kind of had a natural leaning, probably since I was about eight or 10 years old, in going into some kind of STEM field. Um, mm. And so I think that also really helped because then I knew as a kid, these are the extracurricular activities I want to pursue. These are the things that I want to do outside of school. Um, and I also think that was really helpful in helping me stand out from other students when applying for college um, mm -hmm. and kind of like shaping my identity. I always kind of was sure about that. 
um, mm -hmm. which is interesting because I don't actually think I was sure. I just I I never hesitated, and and that sometimes I wish I did because maybe there's other things that I could have experimented with in as a kid that I I never got the chance to because I was just so one track mind towards STEM. But I do I'm grateful mm -hmm. for how that led me to where I am today. Mm. And it, obviously, the science fairs seem to be a big component in that. Were there any other memorable kind of experiences or people that kind of helped nudge you in a specific direction? I think my parents have always been very supportive, but I'm also realizing they were probably supportive because going into STEM was seemingly safe and and yes. and a good career path. <laughs> so they were probably over the moon, but. Um, you know, so my dad is an artist and uh, my mom works as an operations, um, you know, assistant. And basically, I think for them, uh, kind of, they always wanted me to pursue what I wanted to do and, and create. And so I think they would drive me to science fair, drive me to music lessons. And basically, that, I think that was the mindset that was instilled in me was that like, if you work really hard, and you have an interest and you go for it and you sign up for opportunities and just try it out, like you can do anything. And if you don't like it, you can just change and do something else. And so I think that proactive approach of just like, I see a science fair, just sign up for the registration form. Um, you know, I wanted to go to space camp. I signed, I, I, I applied for the scholarship and then got the scholarship and got to go to space camp as a kid. I think that sort of like proactive spirit, a lot of that was supported um, by my parents. And I'm very grateful. Like there was never a time where if I told my mom, mm. hey, I need to go to this really early morning science conference for kids, she would wake up at 7 a.m. and shovel the snow in the middle of winter in January in Calgary. Uh, and it's really yeah. miserable and still dark oh, outside. Yeah. Yeah. My parents never hesitated. They, they have That's been so great. loving and supportive. That's great to hear. And then let's fast forward a little bit. So you decided to go to Princeton for your undergrad degree in mechanical engineering. Um, was that an easy decision for you to, number one, go to Princeton, and then number two, focus on MechEng? Or were there any other options that you were floating around at the time? So as a Canadian, I never knew very much about the American college system. Mm -hmm. Literally, I went on Wikipedia and looked up top 20 universities and applied to as many of them as I felt like I was eligible for and happened to get into Princeton. Um, and so growing up in sort of a lower middle class family, like I knew financial aid was going to be an important decision in where I yeah. went. Um, and so Princeton was the best uh, opportunity. They have a need-based financial aid program. I'm very grateful for that. Um, so that was partly how I chose to go to Princeton. And then um, from there, another. I think unconsciously, I'm realizing part of my decision was I knew I needed to get out of Calgary for multiple mm -hmm. reasons. I think mm -hmm. I knew I didn't want to go into oil and gas, which was, it seemed like the only engineering path you would get stuck on if you wanted to go into STEM. And then the other piece of it was um, I was very much in the closet at the time. So um, mm. I'm, you know, happily married and out. I'm a lesbian. And, uh, you know, I think having the chance to figure out who I am, um, I didn't feel like it was safe for me to do that at home, partly, mm. you know, because it was so close to friends and family and everything that I knew. But also Calgary is just a little bit more socially conservative. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, getting some time and space to explore in a completely new place on the other side of the country, um, that was also a motivator for my decision to go to Princeton. Um, and I'm very grateful for that, and we can get into all of that as well. Um, but I also think mechanical engineering, I made that decision early on, even before Princeton, because I knew I wanted to build physical products. I wanted to work mm. and solve a physical problem. And so that was kind of an easy decision. Although kind of like I was mentioning before, I wish I gave myself the chance to explore other things like, um, you know, maybe software engineering could have been um, also something interesting to me, but I feel like I was so dead set on what I already knew. And I think that's kind of the downside of knowing what you want so early on is you think your whole identity and the way you perceive yourself is one way. 
and you you almost close mm. yourself off to other opportunities. And it wasn't until I think my mid twenties when I realized actually software engineering is also solving problems and making things. And you know, and we can talk about Mobot and all my other stuff later. Right. But I think that um, yeah, that single mindedness, like I already kind of knew that early on. Do you think it was just like naturally ingrained in you? You know, it's kind of the explore versus exploit mindset with the career, right? Of like, you had a very clear idea of where you wanted to go as opposed to myself and just, hey, what's that? You know, shiny new object or that's interesting and seeing the connections between different disciplines. Did you feel like you were always quite, quite clear on where you wanted to go and the types of things that interested you? Yes. I think personally and professionally, that's always been true. Um, you yeah. know, I met and fell in love with my wife very early on. I got married at 23. Um, mm. And so I think that that's just kind of always been my nature. I think yeah. I've never had sort of the analysis paralysis that some some folks uh, struggle with. But yeah, it's a double edged sword, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. So you went to Princeton, you got some geographical space from home, right? Which is interesting because mm -hmm. also as a Canadian, sometimes I feel like, you know, the next step for people who want the big city, go to Toronto, right? East Coast, like bigger city. Yeah. Or you went straight to uh, Princeton. And obviously, have you been in the US since then? Since you? Uh, yes. Yeah. 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 So since I moved to the U.S. to go to college, I've been living here for the last decade plus um, mm -hmm. and have been living and working here. And and I'm yeah, I, I think the U.S. is home for me as well now, but I'm still proudly yeah. Canadian as well. So who do you cheer for during the Olympics? Depends uh, on the sport or? <laughs> depends on the sport. Um, but I'm still mostly Canadian. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, cheering yeah. for Canada. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> As someone who's lived in the States for a while too, there's some amazing things that I've taken back from to Canada after living in the US. So most recent example, Thanksgiving, right? In Canada, Thanksgiving is just like, you know, another day off. It's not how the Americans do it. So when we had Canadian Thanksgiving a couple of weeks ago here, got yeah. all my family together, made a couple of turkeys. So yeah, there's oh, definitely some amazing, amazing things about the culture that I loved. Um, so you're in Princeton and then Talk about your journey and like how you ended up pursuing the Teal Fellowship, which in itself is obviously a big accomplishment, but mm -hmm. you kind of maybe were at a crossroads of what did you want to do at the time? So could you share a little bit more about, uh, number one, for those who don't know what the Teal Fellowship is, share more information about that. And then number two, uh, how the opportunity presented it to yourself to make the decision to not finish your degree and pursue the fellowship. Yeah. So uh, in partway through my sophomore year of college, I started to work on the solar panel rotation system that I had been developing since high school. Um, and I, I did an internship my freshman summer um, and then started working on it part time more and more um, during my sophomore year. And then I saw I came across this email that encouraged applications to this new program called the Teal Fellowship. And I think along the similar lines of like, when I see something, just apply for it and you mm -hmm. never know what will happen. I decided yeah. to apply for this program. And, you know, now the, the Teal Fellowship has been running for over 10 years. So uh, I think everyone kind of knows what it is. Yeah, but at the yeah. time, it was this revolutionary new idea to pay kids, you know, $100,000 to drop out of college or at least stop out of college and right. pursue something interesting for two years. Um, and so at the time, because I knew I was working on Sun Saluter and this, you know, this solar panel research project, I thought, why not just apply and see what happens? Um, and I got into the program and it was an opportunity to move to San Francisco again, moving to a different place. Um, and just partly I wanted that chance to kind of reinvent myself and really actually try to solve problems because mm. as much as I think Princeton was very formative in my experiences in my young adulthood I do feel like I wanted to go out and create things and not just study and I've never been a naturally good student uh, and I never also felt like I fit in socially at Princeton um, so having the chance to just try something new, um, especially under kind of a structured formal program, I just jumped at the chance. And part of how I was able to convince my parents was 
you know, nothing's permanent, right? Like if this doesn't work out, just come yeah. back. Um, and I think that de-risked a lot of it. Um, I think it was definitely a difficult conversation. Um, and even today, I think there's always going to be some lingering, like, well, are you sure you're not missing out on anything <laughs> by not having yeah. a, you know, a, a college degree? And I think it really, what it really comes down to is, do you actually have something you want to work on? Right. Mm -hmm. I don't recommend dropping out because you're bored and you don't know what you want with your life. That's not a yeah. good reason to drop out of college. But if you're like, I have an amazing idea for a business, it's been validated, or I have a program I'm going through, or a job opportunity that's just come up because I have a very unique skill set or something. I think those mm -hmm. are valid reasons to kind of pursue signals outside of the traditional realm. And I think the reason these decisions and discussions with family and, you know, in kind of Asian culture can be so hard is because sometimes there isn't the right reason. And, and it, it isn't, and sometimes it's a purely emotional, like, oh, I'm just bored. Yeah. And that's not a good reason to pursue something. Mm. So even making that decision to, you know, uh, pursue the fellowship and put your academic career on hold, was that a, asking your parents or kind of informing informing your parents of your decision <laughs> uh i think because you know I, i've kind of gotten into i they gave me a lot of autonomy early on okay, um i cool. told them i was going yeah. to princeton they probably didn't want me so far away from home but mm. i told them this was what i wanted and they respected it and so similarly right. i told them i was dropping out of college um, at the time, oh, so you didn't just say, "Oh, it's I'm just going to take a few months off," and you know, I come back. Well, you said, "I'm leaving for two years, and I'm probably never coming back." <laughs> How was it I framed? Did, I did not say that I'm never coming back part, but I did say <laughs> I'm leaving for two years, and we'll see what you know what comes after that. Um, yeah. And they were very nervous. I'm not going to pretend that it was an easy, smooth conversation. There were. And it's not only the first conversation, but it's like the repeated conversations afterwards. Um, mm -hmm. There is a desire to, you know, and I think on both sides. So like, you have to keep justifying it and keep checking and rechecking that like, hey, is this the right path? And yeah. I actually think that's healthy, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a continued dialogue and I'm grateful for it. Um, and I think it really forced me to be very intentional that, I knew this was what I wanted and I knew what was best for myself. But it's also like, if it ever isn't the right thing, you should reassess and change course. Um, and so I think those conversations were helpful because it helped me every single time I did it, continue in, to reinforce to myself that I was making the right decision. Mm -hmm. Very helpful. And this is something kind of want to um, ask that relates to other career decisions you later made. But how important was like, money in the decision of like career prospects and earnings that you know it might sometimes that's a game that people get caught up in um was that ever a top priority when you're earlier in your career and also in school of hey when i start working this is important or was that more of like a second or tertiary or even lower on the priority of what you're optimizing for i think growing up my parents and and i'm really grateful to them for this is you know we i grew up in a lower middle class family but my parents were never materialistic we had mm. a, a nice home um you know we had a you know like my parents both had cars and i got all the clothes and school supplies and everything i needed but i never had the fancy toys or or anything like that and i think that mindset kind of instilled in me that like okay I don't need a lot of money to be happy. Mm. I need yeah. enough to make my basic needs. And there's a lot that I can, you know, I played with my cousin's hand-me-down toys growing up. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think that made me, that growing up even today in adulthood, I think has been instrumental in, in, in really helping me realize that you can be happy with very little. And so financial motivations for me were never um, the biggest driving force. Part of what also helped with everything was the fact that I was on financial aid at Princeton. And um, when I got this Teal Fellowship, you know, you're essentially getting a $50,000 a year stipend, um, which when you're just fresh out of college and also 10 years ago, 
$50,000 is not bad. I mean, it's not yeah. the most impressive salary ever, but for you to just pay rent and then be able to pursue for a sure. business idea, that's more than enough. And when you're 19 or 20 years old. Um, and so I think for me, it was kind of knowing that like at, in your early 20s, you don't need a lot of money. And hopefully it will lead to better job prospects later if you start a company or start a nonprofit. Um, and then if it doesn't work out, just go back to school. So I think that kind of helped de-risk things a little bit for me. Um, and I also think just naturally the best practices that my parents instilled in me where I was always very thoughtful about how I spent. Um, I, mm -hmm. I don't think I ever had challenges even as a young adult with managing my finances and budgeting. And um, I'm not always the most financially literate. Um, I think that I learned a lot from that from my wife who works in finance. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that sort of like, you can be happy with not a lot. Like I'm grateful that my parents, they've always just wanted me to be happy. They don't want me to be like massively rich and successful. Um, that has never been important to our family values. And I think that's really been helpful in feeling comfortable taking some risk. Yeah, yeah. Then you're not really attached to the material outcomes, right? Obviously you'll have a bare uh, level of what, what you need, but you're more focused on building or following your curiosity or some other higher level motive. So mm -hmm. great to hear. Um, so you get into the Teal Fellowship, you're, you show up, it's a first cohort, right? The inaugural class. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And you're surrounded by what, 20 to 30 other peers, similar situation, they drop out of school and have great ideas and have started on projects. What is, what's the first day or week or month like when, when you show up? Yeah, I remember I just moved out to San Francisco, uh, didn't know anyone, but the Teal Fellowship provided us with different mentors and advisors. And basically every quarter, it sort of felt like a board meeting we would meet and sort of you'd assess like, okay, what did you accomplish this quarter? Uh, what did you learn? How are you making progress on your projects? And there were a number of different Teal Fellows during the course of the two years that changed ideas or started different companies or pivoted, mm. or some people went back to school or some people changed okay. research priorities. Some people started a venture capital firm. And so we were all kind of on different paths. Um, and it was really cool because in the early days of the Teal Fellowship, um, it wasn't strictly entrepreneurial focused. So there were mm. people who were doing research and who were studying math and were trying to come up with pioneering new ideas or, you know, mining asteroids on the moon and things mm. that didn't necessarily have like a strict two year payback. Um, I think naturally as the fellowship has evolved, like you want to kind of focus on more near term uh, you know, entrepreneurs, folks that are really working on projects that have a manifestation in the short term. Um, but I think in the early days of the fellowship where it was still just an experiment, um, mm -hmm. it was really fun because I, I got to make friends with other new folks, you know, very different from uh, the folks that I met at Princeton. Um, and I think that also kind of encouraged my entrepreneurial spirit in realizing that there's so many ideas out there and if I know there's a problem that I'm passionate about and I want to solve, like I can jump in and just solve it. I don't need to wait for permission. I don't need to wait for the right credentials. I don't yeah. even need to know anything about that problem. You can learn. And then especially with just like how uh, knowledge is proliferated on the internet, there's mm -hmm. almost no excuse to be like, oh, I'm not qualified. Like you can just learn anything you want. Yeah. So, I mean, given that your exposure to entrepreneurship and other entrepreneurs very early on, what are some of the key tenets and traits of people that you meet in the entrepreneurial space? I really do think that endurance and grit is probably mm. one of the most important attributes. I think all of the sort of, even if I look at kind of like all the Teal Fellows that were in my class, I think the ones that really have ended up succeeding are the ones that were consistent. Um, and that's no different than sort of regular life, but it's interesting because you're when it's like you pick 20 or 30 people and you sort of follow them throughout two years, like there are the folks who are sort of like wandering around from idea to idea. And there are folks that are working really hard, learning and growing every day and holding themselves accountable. 
Um, and it's interesting because with such a young age, some of us haven't learned best practices for productivity, for self, you know, management and just time management, and even just like having actual responsibility. Because we're so used to like, you go to class as a student, it, you have, you know where you need to be at 9am, you know you have an exam in 20 days, you have to study for that exam and everything is so structured. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden you're thrown into the real world and you don't even have an actual job that you have to show up to. It's like <laughs> hang out in your house and then work on something. And so I think the people that ended up being most successful were the ones that like learned these practices and, and, and were able to self-manage early on. And so I think in your early 20s, it's mm. so important to learn those skills because like, and I wish they taught this in high school, in elementary school, like these sorts of skills are so important. And, and, and I think it's just not talked about enough, but I think that's actually the core of entrepreneurship is being able to grind. I think, yes, there's some, some of it that is based on timing and circumstance and the industry that you choose to go into. But I think it's this persistence of waking up in the morning, knowing what you're going after, pursuing it, and then, okay, it didn't work, iterate and keep going, but not kind of letting yourself just like, you know, float with the wind wherever something takes you. Yeah, yeah. And then what about this balance between having a very clear idea and vision of where you want to go, right? And also really believing in yourself in the idea versus when you know it's time to pivot, right? Because I feel like that could be a little bit of a trade-off when you start to be more influenced by outside opinion, outside thought, and obviously just like feedback in general. So any anything that's worked for you on like how to find that right balance between persistence, but also open-mindedness and flexibility? I think when it comes to being persistent, you also have to iterate. Um, you can't mm. be doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting different results. I'm pretty sure that's a quote. Yeah. Um, I think that's the difference is when you mm. feel yourself running out of different pathways, that's when you know like, okay, maybe the external forces are right and there's, I need to switch gears. But I think when I know that like, okay, I tried option A and it didn't work, but I still see very clearly in my mind, options B through Z. I know like, mm -hmm. I haven't tried everything. I should keep trying. That's when, okay, I got to iterate and do it again and just make sure that, or maybe I don't go all the way to Z, but I try B, C, D, and E. And then I'm like, okay, as I do that, I'm learning new information. And yep. then, okay, I pivot from there and new pathways form. So I think where that kind of gets off track is you you sort of get into this state of delusion where you're like, I, I think I'm doing something different, but I'm actually not. And external forces are telling me that it's the same thing. I mm. think that's when you really kind of have to be honest with yourself. And when you're so emotionally sunk into an idea or an identity, it can be really hard. And I think for me specifically, this applies to when I made the decision to kind of pivot from working on Sunsaluter, my nonprofit that I did mm -hmm. during the Teal Fellowship, to actually going into tech. And so I later became a product manager and then later started yeah. my company, Mobot. Um, for a while, you know, I when I was working on Sunsaluter, there were all these different things that we could try. I started Sunsaluter as a business. Then I realized actually it's really hard to start a profitable business in the developing world. Mm -hmm. And so I pivoted to being a nonprofit. And then you know, I realized actually, well, when you do a nonprofit, there's a lot of grant making and applications I have to do, and you have to run a local team and you have to travel a lot. And these were all things that I like, as I learned, I realized actually that's not what I want for my life. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was kind of like this continued iterative process that helped me realize I really love building and creative things. Uh, I'm not so great at the grant writing. I'm not so great at the organizational management, um, especially with all the travel and cultural differences that were involved with that. And so that was ultimately what led me to realize, actually, I should open source the work that we've done, hand it off to you know trusted organizations around the world that have already been great partners. And maybe it's an opportunity for me to try something new. I don't have to be the solar entrepreneur. Like there's more mm. than one identity. And I think 
even especially today with Google, and I'm pretty sure if you Google my name, I'm you still see the solar stuff. It's so hard to reinvent yourself on mm -hmm. the internet. Um, but I think like that kind of pivot and iteration has been an experimentation has been core to me finding the right career path for me today. Mm, very helpful. So there's this point where you're like, okay, identity and also like just business change of who you are and what you want to do. And then you start working at Palantir. Is that kind of your first job and role as a product manager and at a company? Yeah. 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 So in my early 20s, um, you know, I think I was like 23 or 24. Um, yeah, I got my first job working at Palantir as a product manager. Uh, and I basically helped Palantir clients build these custom web front ends uh, that would use the Palantir data backend um, to, so that customers could get access to the data that they wanted. And these were larger customers that just needed a more specific workflow. And so that was kind of where I started to realize, hey, you can solve real problems in the real world with software too, right? I, I got the chance to touch mm -hmm. different clients from energy clients to government to healthcare insurance. It was really cool. And it's you know very similar to a lot of the reason why folks go into consulting um, mm -hmm. is you, you want to kind of expose yourself to different industries to figure out what you want to do. Um, and tech is a great way to do that. And so Palantir was this awesome, in my particular role at the time, this was you know a few years ago, Palantir's evolved since. Um, but I think it was great exposure for me to kind of a combination of tech and consulting. And so that kind of helped me realize that I really wanted to double down in product management. And so I transitioned into a role where I got to focus on product management full time at a company called Butterfly Network, and they were building a medical device. Um, and it was there that I kind of realized uh, the, I got the idea for how to start my company, uh, but that that role that I played for a couple of years working as a product manager was really incredible because I got exposure to how, what it's like to work with engineers and QA professionals uh, and business development folks and sales folks. And I think that has all been really helpful in the way that I interact as a CEO and founder today with my company. Mm. That's great. So Palantir was a great first exposure into touching different industries, opening your mind to kind of the value of software. And then Butterfly Network, again, that's a handheld ultrasound device, right? That's right. So it's a good mix between hardware, software, again, really helping people. And you got to sit at that intersection of all the different functions. So can you share a little bit more about how the idea you mentioned, you know, Mobot, the company that you started and you're, you're leading today, how that idea started and uh secondly what gave you that kind of extra edge to make that pivot and say hey i want to do this full time and see if i can build something yeah so i was working as a product manager at butterfly and i ended up having to do a lot of physical testing with real hardware real iphones mm -hmm. real android devices real tablets um and part of the complexity was it wasn't like a web app like at palantir at Palantir, you could just kind of run things in the cloud. You could write simulated yeah. tests using libraries like Selenium and Cypress. But then at, uh, at Butterfly, I had to do a lot of physical hands-on testing because there were just so many complex integration points. And I came to the realization that the iOS and Android tech stacks are so different from mm. the open source world of the web. Um, and so there are a lot of automation tools uh, RPA tools, web automation tools that just cannot be used when you're building a native mobile application or even when you're using cross-platform libraries like React or uh, React Native or Flutter. And so that was how I got the idea for starting Mobot was I was just, I had so many late nights as a product manager of tapping on different iOS and Android devices because the engineers told me, I don't have time or I, I can't write an automation script for this. The only way to actually test this is to test it like a real human using the platform. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And so that fundamentally became the thesis for Mobot is mm. I believe that we're moving into a world where software is becoming more physical. 
And I think this goes back to my days of studying mechanical engineering is I want to solve problems in a physical way. And I see that in this world where we use IoT devices and medical devices and you have CarPlay and Android Auto in your car um, and there's airport check-in kiosks, the world is using software when you're on the go. You're wearing a Fitbit. You're wearing an Apple Watch. Um, and so gone are the days where you can just kind of perfectly simulate things in the cloud. Um, there needs to be a physical, real-world way mm -hmm. to do testing. And so yeah. that's where Mobot comes in. Um, you know, I got the idea for starting Mobot after doing too many late nights of manual testing myself and realized that engineers and product managers and QA professionals don't have time to just be sitting there button mashing all day long, especially mm -hmm. because it's the same tasks over and over again. So what if there was a way to automate physical testing in the cloud and have a yeah. fleet of robots in a warehouse and you could just send your commands to a physical robot and they would the robots would do the physical testing and then give you results via a web platform. And so that's what formed the idea for Mobot, you know, almost four years ago now. And since then, you know, have, I, we've raised a bunch of funding and now we're uh, a 45 person company. Um, but that core idea of what Mobot was and is that came from like my early struggles as a product manager. Wow. So again, th this is a specific robot that will actually go through the different customer experiences and user flows, right? That's right. Um, you know, our vision is that we can enable your everyday software engineer or QA professional who doesn't have knowledge about robots or how to program them, and they can just use a simple interface to just teach the robot what to do. Um, and then the robot yeah. will go and execute those test steps. And because we are taking a black box approach to testing, it actually allows us to cover test cases that traditionally can't be done mm -hmm. by usual software testing tools. So things like chatting between two different or three different devices, you have a rideshare application between a driver and a rider accepting an application or accepting a trip and then finishing the trip. Uh, you have push notifications, location services, Bluetooth, connecting a hardware peripheral. You have different Wi-Fi conditions. You have uh, rotating a device between landscape and portrait. Um, there's playing audio and video and connecting to an IoT peripheral. These are all things that can't be done with a simulator or even mm -hmm. a virtualized device running in the cloud. And so Mobot is actually able to test authentically and realistically the way that a human can. Wow. And there must be so many different permutations, right? So if a customer wants to use Mobot, how do they kind of define the, the scope and the variability of what is actually tested? Yeah. So the thing that the strategy for physical QA ultimately depends on what your business needs are. If you mm -hmm. know, like, okay, your onboarding flow in your mobile app or your fintech banking app is you have to sign up for a new bank account and you have to create a debit card. Like those kinds of flows are the most business critical things. Um, yeah. Instead of trying to focus on like every single permutation in the whole world, mm -hmm. because you could test forever if time and money were no object. Um, yeah. But really what we do is we partner with iOS and Android engineering teams to really focus on, okay, knowing what you know about your user journeys and your product analytics, how can we select the right test devices that can test that can be tested? How do we select the right testing flows that actually match the things that are most frequently trafficked? And so we can catch the bugs that matter the most because uh, it you don't want to test every single little thing. Some bugs may not be worth fixing, um, and there's a finite number of points that you have in a sprint. Um, and so our goal is to really prioritize and help engineering teams focus on the product features that matter the most. Mm, great. And then now with the um, latest fundraise, what's kind of next for the horizon on uh, for Mobot and what are the goals in the next six to 12 months? Yeah, so we recently raised our 12.5 million Series A led by Coda Capital, which we're very grateful for. And this is going to allow us to continue to expand Mobot to uh, a large number of different customers. Um, so we currently work with a lot of different smaller startups, 
and, and, and piloting our technology with their iOS and Android engineering teams. We are excited that we're gonna, with this capital, we can grow our team so we can continue to build scalable infrastructure and one day get to that vision of robots in a warehouse uh, that can be running hundreds of tests simultaneously. And uh, this will also allow us to grow our go-to-market efforts so mm. we can reach larger enterprise companies as well. Great. And then kind of switching gears, I know we'll wrap up soon, is around, um, you know, what do you do for you know self-care? Because obviously running a startup can be very hectic, you know, living in New York as well. Uh, what do you do to unplug and also just um, shift gears away from work and, and building robot? Yeah, I spend a lot of time with my wife and my dog. Mm. Um, and so I think that's uh, always important to make time for family. I think one of the things that's always been helpful is we take weekends off at Mobot. Um, we're not working seven days a week like crazy. We work very hard on weekdays, but I think that work-life balance manifests differently for different companies and teams. Yeah. Um, but for us, like fully disconnecting on the weekends is extremely important. Um, and then also uh, playing music. Uh, I recently, so I played violin and I'm a classically trained musician uh, and played for 13 years as a kid. Um, mm. And I think that kind of deliberate practice has also been super helpful even today. Um, but yeah. I recently started playing the bass guitar, um, oh, the cool. electric bass guitar and, and just like learning something new, kind of rediscovering music that I love to listen to as a kid, like classic rock, pop from the 80s and um, mm. just like learning something completely different than what I do in my everyday job has also been uh, really helpful for restoring balance to my life. It's mm. helpful. And then kind of the other question I had is around, you know, your experiences being an outsider, right? Whether it's, you know, Canadian in America or, you know, being Asian Canadian, what, any advice that you would give to people who might view themselves as outsider and trying to break into um, whatever field they're interested in going, whether it's you know oil and gas for some people or uh, going into a tech startup or climbing the corporate ladder at a company? Um, what, what advice would you have for people who might feel like they're not part of the majority and just trying to break through and succeed? I think there's a balance in life of kind of knowing when you need to develop new skills to fit in and knowing when you should be yourself. So mm. an example is I am naturally a very quiet, very introverted mm. person. I grew up, yeah, feeling like an outsider. And then also the, the quiet Asian stereotype totally mm. played a role for me. Um, and it wasn't until college and sort of going through the Teal Fellowship and being forced to do a lot of public speaking. Um, and also, uh, I was a coxswain on the rowing team at college. Mm. Um, you know, that's the small person who sits in the back of the boat yeah, and man. yells at the rowers. Um, <laughs> that was when I learned that actually extroversion and public speaking and confidence are a skill that you can emulate and learn. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to come naturally, but you have to practice. So you have to put yourself out there. I had to sign up for speaking engagements. I had to go to coffee meetings with people that made me uncomfortable. And I think learning some of those skills so that you can fit in and emulate those behaviors is really important in your early 20s and, and throughout your 20s. And then as you kind of enter your 30s and you start to figure out who you are and your professional identity, sometimes you can uh, scale that back a little bit to become yourself. But I think there's a balance of knowing when you should be yourself, but also knowing when it's okay that you can acquire skills mm -hmm. and, 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 and change a little bit of yourself just to get the opportunity. Because once you fit yeah. in and you get your foot in the door, you can change and go back, right? But I think there, there's that knowing that balance and it's a different balance for everyone, but not mm -hmm. being afraid to adjust parts of your identity as needed, not because you're, hiding yourself. I've never, and it's impossible to hide being Asian. Um, I think growing up, it's interesting because my parents always just like told me, try to fit in. We mm -hmm. anglicized our last name. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's okay. You don't need to do like the, the Chinese stuff. Just focus on like school and fitting in. 
Um, yeah. And I actually realized that's not what I want. I am super mm. proud to be Chinese Canadian. Um, I'm super proud of the fact that my family, uh, you know, uh, were refugees. I think that's a huge part of who I am today. I want to share that story with people. Um, I am not embarrassed to admit that, like, the stereotype of being the Asian American who loves boba uh, and watches Wong Fu on YouTube, that's me. <laughs> I am not yeah. afraid to admit that. I love that part of myself. And I, yeah, I, but I think it took a while for me to get to that point that mm -hmm. I'm like, that's who I am. I share that openly with my team. And I think it also helps the, uh, the other minorities at our company feel comfortable being themselves. Some of them are Asian. Some of them are members of the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's, that's a part of the culture that I want to set at our company. Um, but I do think it's this balance of knowing when to acquire skills so you can fit in and then emulating those right behaviors and also just not letting stereotypes hold you back and knowing that you can change yourself. But yeah. also being proud of yourself. That's really important. Yeah, yeah. It's great advice, especially on like the skill acquisition too, right? So did I hear you right? You feel like you're more of an introvert than extrovert just by default? And like where I'm you get extremely, your yeah, I'm extremely, yeah. extremely introverted, but you can imagine as a CEO, I'm in yeah. meetings eight hours a day. Um, and even today, I think sort of the, the persona that I put on um, of being confident and well-spoken and all of that, or at least I hope so, um, still yeah. working on it. Every For day sure. is a journey. Um, that is all learned from years and years mm -hmm. of practice, years of going to networking events where I felt uncomfortable, years of not fitting in but trying anyway, years of forcing myself to speak up at meetings at work, even when I wasn't sure if I was right, um, yeah. and even chiming in. And there's like little ways that you can start doing that, but you have to put yourself out there and not be afraid of the rejection. And I think the the winning and losing in music competitions and science fairs also helped with that. Mm. Yeah, the vulnerability, putting yourself out there with, you know, the end goal of like skill building and growth, right? So that's right. Yeah, I, I totally hear you. Like on the Monday to Friday, we're in front of, you know, colleagues talking a lot, selling, storytelling. And by the time the weekend comes, I'm like, I just want to hibernate with my, uh, my kids and go for a run by myself. So absolutely balance. Eden, <laughs> thank you so much for the time it was great to catch up for people who want to follow you and the mobot journey where is the best place for them to find you yeah feel free to check us out at mobot.io if you'd like to learn more about my company and you can come find me on linkedin uh, my name is eden Fulgo. great thanks so much have a great weekend thanks justin Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Asian Tech Leaders. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your family and friends, leave me a review on iTunes, or drop me a note on our website, asiantechleaders.com. I really appreciate having each of you as a listener and sharing your valuable time with me. Be well, stay healthy, and follow your heart. See you soon.